Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello, everyone. This is Ryan Tripp. This is a New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. We're here today with Gregor Mallard. He is Professor of Anthropology and Sociology at the Graduate Institute in Geneva. We're going to be discussing his book published by Cambridge University Press earlier this year, Gift Exchange, The Transnational History of a Political Idea. Welcome to the show, Professor Mallard. Thank you very much, Ryan, for your invitation. So what prompted you to study the, quote, genealogy of Marcel Moses' 1925 The Gift, particularly vis-a-vis Harry Lieberson's 2010 The Return of the Gift, European History of a Global Idea? Well, at uh, the time when I started thinking about writing this book, um, I was very preoccupied with the European debt crisis um, that was unfolding after uh, Greece almost defaulted on its uh, sovereign debt. And there was, at the time, a lot of discussion about the sources of international solidarity. Um, You may not remember exactly all these discussions if you are living in the U.S. context, but at the time, there were a few positions and uh, one of the main ideas was that European states and uh, internationally uh, as well expressed their solidarity by adhering to the same common rules and by uh, participating in the same markets. In Europe, there, were, uh, there was a common market and in the rest of the world, there were global markets. And basically... Uh, many people believe that uh, states uh, express solidarity by uh, participating in these markets and that they could be excluded from the International Society of Responsible States if they did not follow market rules. 
And I was puzzled by this idea. And in uh, in France, and we will talk more about that later. There was uh, there were school that said actually uh, among economists, actually it's not participation in markets uh, and adherence to the same rules that uh, manifest how states express solidarity but it's through the participation in gift exchanges. And I find this notion quite uh, interesting because as uh, a professor in anthropology and sociology, I knew that it came from Marcel Mauss. And so uh, I started looking at how we could use this notion of gift exchange in relation to the present context to understand debates about uh, international solidarity, not only within Europe, but also between the global north and the global south. And that led me to, uh, to trace back the different steps that uh, brought us from Marcel Mauss to the present discussions about European uh, sovereign debt. And I think that is what characterizes the, the, the similarity of approach between my book and the book, the great book by uh, Harry Liberson, uh, is that we think that gift exchange, and we will talk about that later, is more of a political idea in the sense that it expresses, it has a normative dimension and not just a conceptual or analytical category. And uh, whereas Harry Liberson explores the genesis of this political idea in the 18th and 19th century, I focus mostly on the 20th century. Uh, so that was pretty much the, the main ambition of behind the book. Who was Marcel Mauss? And how did the editors of Emile Durkheim's uh, L'année sociologique, as well as pre-war co cooperatist uh, solidarity, non-Marxist Marxian socialism, the Juarez assassination, and post-war Parisian gift exchanges among art collectors, ethnologists, and curators all contribute to the aims of the 1925 The Gift. And what was the significance of their ethnic and economic backgrounds? So you 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 pack a lot of uh, concepts in in your in your question, um, <laughs> and a lot of people and a lot of names. Uh, so let me unpack a little bit uh, everything. Uh, so you're right to 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 uh, stress the significance of Marcel Mauss' personality, the context in which he's writing his very famous essay, uh, "The Gift." Uh, uh, which is uh, an article that he publishes in this journal you mentioned, L'année Sociologiste, in 1925, uh, because they are in the political context, uh, the international political context, which is at the time very much focused on the German default. Uh, so we are talking about the Greek default in 2009. And, and at the time, most was really preoccupied with the fact that Germany was not going to pay its sovereign debt to the allies who had won the war. And it's in this context that he writes the gift in a journal in social science. Um, so to, to answer your question, who is most? Uh, Mauss is uh, a French uh, scholar, was born in 1870 and died in 1950. 
Wu is basically remembered for his essay, The Gift, and for being the founding father of anthropology in France. Uh, and he structured uh, French anthropology around a couple of institutes. We're going to talk about some of them. And he emphasized the importance of not only studying market logics as economics economists started doing it, but also these other forms of exchange, which he calls gift exchange. And that's what he brought uh, to the field of anthropology, uh, mainly by summarizing a lot of the literature that had been produced before, that is, for instance, reviewed in a uh, Harry Liberson's uh, uh, book that you mentioned, uh, for instance, the work of uh, Bronislas Malinowski, the work of uh, Franz Bose, and he's very much somewhat uh, what we would call an armchair anthropologist. Uh, he didn't really do field work like we think now when we think about uh, anthropology. Uh, he was more of a philologist. He knew very much languages. Uh, he knew uh, ancient languages. He knew, uh, he read texts in Sanskrit, in Hebrew, in German, in French, in English. So he was what we would call a savant. But at the same time, he was a very uh, he was an intellectual. You know, that term started, uh, uh, was uh, born in the context of the Dreyfus affair. And all the people who participated in the circle of Emile Durkheim, all the young people who, who participated in the creation of uh, this journal, L'année sociologique, were close uh, uh, defendants of the cause of Albert Dreyfus, who was a French-Jewish uh, uh, military professional who was charged for treason by the state. And uh, the intellectual, like Moss and Durkheim, uh, used this, uh, uh, basically entered into politics at this moment by defending the cause of someone who was a bit like them, uh, uh, someone who was of Jewish religious background, attacked by anti-Semites uh, in France, and uh, who uh, tried to defend both the notion of uh, human rights, they founded the League of Human Rights in France before the First World War, and socialism. And they created the French Socialist Party before the war. So that's most before uh, the war, a young man, very ardent, etc. And after the war, when he writes The Gift in 1925, he's more of an old man. He's almost 50. He's more the dean of this Durkheimian school after the death of Durkheim. He's still very much uh, a learned man and very much involved into politics. As I said, he was very preoccupied with the question of reparations at the time of the German reparations, and he's also an editorialist. So he writes uh, political uh, articles in the so French Socialist Journal, and he writes also a lot of articles in this review, L'année Sociologique, which had uh, been created by uh, his uncle Durkheim. And basically, after uh, the publication of that uh, essay, he, he creates his own school of uh, ethno ethnology. And uh, unfortunately for him, 
his productivity declines in the 30s uh, as his wife becomes very sick and uh, he mostly uh, deals with PhD advising. He develops uh, uh, basically a new generation of ethnologists and uh, most of them, unfortunately, uh, do not survive the Second World War. They are killed during the Second World War, and he dies slowly after the Second World War in 1950. So that gives you a, a picture of the man most and a little bit uh, the people around him that I describe in the book. What practical issues informed Moses' 1926 establishment of the Institute of Ethnology in Paris? Further, why do you contextualize debates over ethnology in colonial fields of power as well as the metropolitan fields of power, especially for generational shifts in macroeconomics and the consequences of that split in international legal education? Well, that's um, as you as you may know. I'm a, I'm a sociologist and I'm a sociologist of knowledge, and uh, and in the in and I'm not only a historian of political ideas. So uh, being trained in the field of sociology, for me, Pierre Bourdieu was someone, was a very important reference. Uh, and this notion of field has been very uh, instrumental for historian of ideas in France, but also in the US, uh, to describe how ideas circulate, how they are given new meanings, because you need, as a historian, to embed this circulation into the local and the, con the contextual conflicts of the times, which are often at the intersection between academy and politics. So that's why I use the notion of field uh, that uh, Pierre Bourdieu proposed uh, for historians of ideas. Now, as I said, this notion of gift exchange uh, is used by Marcel Mauss to find, to identify the roots of international solidarity. And international solidarity, not only between European nations, at the time between France, Germany, Belgium, the United Kingdom, who uh, had, was basically a collective reconstruction effort uh, dependent on the financing mechanisms, the collective financing mechanism that had been created after the First World War by the Versailles Treaty and that were monitored by the Reparation Commission, but also between international solidarity between the metropolis and the colonies. And when most writes his essay in 1926, uh, in 1925, and uh, is still uh, trying to get from the authorities, from the French authorities, the creation of an institute of ethnology. For him, it's very important because uh, it will give, finally, France the ability to create a practical science which will be useful for the French state, so, and especially for the colonial state, 
to administer its colonial subjects. And so uh, Marcel Mauss, when he writes uh, The Gift, in a sense, writes the scientific program of its future institute. He has been lobbying the minister of the colonies for 30 years. Since 1896, he has been writing letters to the minister of the colonies to advocate for the creation of that institute of ethnology. And finally, thanks to the political victory of the socialists, actually, uh, in 1924, after his editorial uh, campaign that was successful uh, against the right-wing government, he obtains the creation of this institute funded by the Ministry of the Colonies uh, to study how exchanges between the metropolis and the colonies participate in the transformations of the local society in the colonial uh, territories that France directly administers. And so for him, when he writes The Gift, he basically proposes a program to his future student in the Institute of Ethnology um, for the study of these metropolitan colonial exchanges. And, uh, and it's very important to understand, uh, to, 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 to basically recontextualize the publication of that essay into the logics of the colonial and the metropolitan field in his time. And that's what a, a, a big portion of the book does at the beginning so that readers understand uh, what is at stake here. After the Great War, World War I, how and why did Marcel Mauss's 1922 political essays on the circulation of sovereign debt and a gift exchange temporal sequence advance sovereign debt rescheduling and the extension of annuities for Germany? And what were notions of reparative justice, responsibility, and solidarist, solidarist uh, quasi-contracts in the context of the German economy? nationalism and Bolshevism? And why did the renegotiation scheme collapse? So there, there are a lot of questions uh, in, 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 in your, in your <laughs> question. Um, I'll, I'll try to, to illustrate uh, uh, what I said uh, earlier when I said that uh, the German reparation debate was fundamental for Marcel Mauss and uh, how his essay, which is an academic essay, uh, sort of a big literature review of a lot of uh, books uh, in anthropology dealing with gift exchanges, for instance, in the Quackwill Youth or the Potlatch uh, uh, or the Kula Ring system as observed by Bronislav Malinowski in the Argonauts of the Pacific, how all this is, is uh, linked to the reparation debate and the ability of Germany to pay back some of the debt that France owes to the United States, uh, in principle, uh, after the Great War, because uh, France financed its war efforts largely by borrowing money to French uh, creditors, but also to foreign creditors, uh, like American creditors. So there's a circulation of debt 
that uh, is uh, collectively organized in Europe after the Great War, and it's organized according to uh, articles written in the Versailles Treaty uh, that talk about reparation. And Mo says very early on in his essay in the gift that, for instance, the coolering or the potlatch, it's about the circulation of debt. It's a, it's a system that we find in certain societies uh, to give rules and to create legal obligations in the absence of formal contracts uh, so that societies can grow and can exchange with one another. And so his notion, in a sense, uh, could be applicable to the political context of his time to the international political context of his time uh, even though in his academic essay the gift he doesn't reference immediately his political essays that he writes when he advocates a certain understanding uh, a certain policy vis-a-vis -vis reparations so what is the the policy in a nutshell he says that at a time when in Germany, in 1922, 1923, 1924, there is a strong uh, unwillingness to pay the reparation, the amount that Germany owes to France, to Belgium, and to other allies as reparations. So it's money that should be used by the French state to help French civilians reconstruct their home after they were, these homes were destroyed by the, the German army, uh, there's this German unwillingness to pay back the French. So what are the, the two main policies that are debated? One is sanctions, and that's what the right-wing government of uh, Raymond Poincaré, the French government at the time, uh, before 1924, advisors. They invade the Ruhr, a very rich region of uh, Germany, and they propose to apply this uh, sanction as a result of the default and to then administer directly industrial production. And then there's the policy that socialists, most included, advocate. And this policy is basically to give time give time to Germany so that they rebuild their economic power and later in the distant future, we don't know exactly when, it's not going to be specified in a contract, but when Germany can start reimbursing, it will. Of course, you can see the problem between uh, the, the opposition between the two policies. The problem of the second policy, the one that most advocates, Leon Blum, his friend, who's also in the Socialist Party, advocates in their uh, uh, publications, in their political uh, essays, uh, during the, the, camp the French legislative campaign of 1924, is that it's highly uncertain whether Germany will reimburse when it becomes stronger economically again. And what most says is that there is almost a hundred percent certainty that if Germany received this gift, the gift of time, Germany will repay. And because he has found in his essay, the gift, 
which he publishes in the academic journal of which is the main editor, he has found a universal rule that says that all nations, once given and once they accept the gift, are going to give back. No one knows exactly when, but they will. And a lot of uh, readers uh, today of this essay uh, know about the three obligations, the obligation to give, the obligation to accept, and the obligation to give back. But they forget also the political applicability of what he says in the, the policy context, in the policy debate of his time which may, makes a lot of readers of the gift uh, puzzled when they read all the things that most has to say about the Germanic tribes. So what I argue in, uh, in, in my book, Gift Exchange, is that uh, what, what most tries to also do in his academic essay, the gift, is to convince his readers, who are the, almost the same readers as the readers of his political essays, uh, because it's a tiny French elite who reads that, that the Germans know the obligation to give back. And if you trust them, they will give back. And so this is a, a policy that after the, uh, the, the failure of the right-wing uh, government Poincaré to, to remain in power will be applied and there will be uh, certain moratoriums that are implemented uh, to give Germany time to pay back, but that will be eventually defeated by the rise of the Nazis in, in Germany and Adolf Hitler will declare that he will no longer uh, pay back German reparations when he arrives in uh, power in 1933. Uh, but these are reasons that are too... Uh, uh, complicated to describe quickly. So for a little context for the 1925 The Gift, um, can you elaborate a bit on uh, Moses' criticism of the French occupation of the Ruhr, which you've already um, touched on? The the uh, ensuing Battle of the Franc um, um, and uh, your appraisal of Francois Simeon's criticism of The Gift. And also, tack on to that, why anthropology? What what was uh, Moses' anthropological intervention here? That's a very good question. So the indeed it's uh, it comes as a surprise to us that anthropology or actually ethnology, uh, because uh, uh, most didn't like the word anthropology, which he associated <laughs> uh, to something different in France at the time. Anthropology meant uh, a more biological understanding of the discipline. It was more the study of races uh, characterized by uh, biological traits, and that's something he opposed. He, he preferred what we would call the, a cultural anthropology today, but he called it ethnology. So, but today we are puzzled to to see that anthropology would be uh, mobilized as a discipline in debates that are essentially about macro-financial stabilization. And uh, we expect now that the IMF <laughs> and the thousands of economists working at the IMF will have an internal debate uh, on questions uh, of debt restructuring uh, after a possible default and uh, stabilization programs. And we don't expect uh, to see a lot of 
anthropologists uh, today uh, participating in this debate. Um, at the time, it, it was a bit different. Uh, Marcel Mauss uh, proposed that uh, anthropology could participate in this debate because anthropology or ethnology uh, was a way to study uh, the, the, the social foundations of legal obligations. And uh, this is the, uh, the, the door into the debate because he said, of course, we can have a very complex debate that at the time was taking place at the Reparation Commission with experts like uh, John Maynard Keynes, a very uh, uh, prestigious economist like Charles Gide, uh, was a, uh, who became a friend of uh, Marcel Mauss, uh, who sat at the Reparation Commission to find out how much debt Germany could sustain. So... Basically, the Reparation Commission at the time was supposed to recalculate the level of reparations that Germany would have to pay to France and the Allies. There was a number written in the Versailles Treaty, but this number was too high. And so the Reparation Commission was to uh, give a more realistic number. But so what most tried to, to say was uh, basically to give anthropological uh, grounds for the notion of the moratorium, because that notion was very new at the time and very controversial. And if you think about uh, today's context and the, the context of Greece that I started with, uh, very few people uh, uh, believed that Greece should be given some time uh, before starting to pay back its debt. The notion of moratorium was, for instance, uh, uh, put into the public policy debate by uh, the Greek, uh, the former Greek Minister of Finance, uh, Varoufakis, when he said uh, we should stop paying, uh, reimbursing, we should just pay the interest. But that was something very... Uh, uh, polemical because you create this moment of uncertainty where you don't know when the moratorium will end because you index the ability to end the moratorium with the economic recovery of the country and this you never know if once stronger the country will agree to uh, to pay back and so what most brought into this debate is an exploration of this link between the ability of a nation to grow stronger again and to uh, observe its legal obligation to pay back some debt. And he did a survey of this legal understanding uh, among a wide variety of nations and find that it's a robust there's a robust correlation. And that is the argument that he says, basically, anthropology can give to this debate, can contribute to this debate. Whether it's proven wrong or right, this is uh, uh, another question. And unfortunately, uh, 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 Germany, when it became stronger economically, did not reimburse its debt. But uh, that's another story. So 
aside from the Native American uh, potlatch and those purported dramatic gift exchange ideas, how and why did Moses' ideas of <clears throat> reciprocal exchange of prestations, contractual gifts, and generosity in the gift, as well as his nation typology of levels of economic integration, how do they all derive from indigenous committee criticism of chartered companies and trusts in the French Congo, as well as that uh, interwar progressive rejection of the French colonial pact? And if possible, uh, try to uh, uh, leak your response to uh, the cover of your book. Okay. So the... Um... So, so I just uh, explained to you um, how the notion of gift exchange made sense in the European political context of uh, its time. Uh, now, your, your question refers to uh, another chapter and indeed to the book cover, where, which is basically an image of a stock of a, of a chartered company a French chartered company called the Compagnie Forestière Sanga Ubangi that was operating in the Congo, the French Congo, and uh, and that was uh, very controversial uh, at the time uh, because it was attacked by André Gide, the nephew of uh, Charles Gide, who was sitting in the Reparation Commission. And André Gide, uh, as you may know, was a, a laureate of the Nobel Prize in Literature. Uh, and he did uh, travel in the Congo that was uh, widely read at the time, uh, where he met a lot of colonial administrators who told him about the problems and the, the horrible treatment of colonial subjects by chartered companies, which tried to extract rubber from a colonial subjects without paying them. Uh, because, uh, so they said, a certain amount of their uh, free labor was due to the chartered company uh, and they had to work about a third of the year, for instance, freely for the extraction of uh, uh, rubber in this instance, but other uh, commodities for uh, other uh, chartered companies uh, for free. And uh, in the 20s, the Voyage au Congo by André Gide is uh, very famous and he takes, uh, he criticizes this uh, specific company uh, of which I, I put a stock at, uh, at, as the cover of my book because uh, for some reason, uh, and this is very little known, uh, the notion, uh, uh, the, the chartered companies used the same notion, prestation, prestation en nature, uh, this uh, French word, uh, to refer to the forced labor that uh, colonial subjects uh, had to give them. Uh, and it's the same notion that Moses uh, is using in his essay on the gift exchange, where he says gift exchange is a system de, re de prestation réciproque in French. So it's a system of reciprocal gift of services, we could say. Uh, services rendered. Uh, prestation means that services uh, given to, to someone. 
And uh, I, I find it very surprising that this notion of gift exchange, which is very valued uh, in anthropology and in political discourse today, especially in the in the left, uh, if you can think of uh, of the essays of, for instance, of David Graeber and a lot of uh, other anthropologists who believe that against the the, the cruel logic of uh, the market. Uh, communities, including transnational communities at the international level, should be organized according to the logic of gift exchange, which is much more generous, etc. Uh, it's very strange to find that the notion of gift exchange under the pen of most uses the same legal notion that chartered French chartered companies in France before the Great War and after the Great War in the interwar period used to extract labor from colonial subjects. So I tried to, to look uh, at different archives uh, to find where we could find this notion of prestation, uh, to trace a little bit its genealogy. And uh, you mentioned the Committee for the Protection of Indigenous People, uh, to which most participated in the years 1890, and uh, a little bit uh, before the, the Great War, which was a committee founded by uh, scholars in colonial law, uh, scholars uh, in the Collège de France, where uh, Marcel Mauss will become a professor in, later on in the 1930s, who advocated in the context of scandals that were revealed by uh, a, a range of uh, uh, colonial administrators were almost like whistleblowers before the before the term was invented like Roger Casman in, in, in the UK or uh, 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 Félicien Chalai in, in France who denounced the terrible practices of chartered companies in the Congo. Uh, that was really uh, a scandal because when populations did not work for free, did not give this prestation to the chartered company, the chartered companies put their uh, women in hostage camps until uh, the men came to work and often died at work. Uh, so it was really the invention uh, a bit of this, you know, concerned slave camps. Uh, and not only that, but these chartered companies sometimes sued the French state uh, to get reparations uh, because the French state had not uh, uh, delivered that part of the contract, which was that the French state did not invest in public infrastructure. It was supposed to be the chartered companies who invested. But in exchange, the French state made sure that chartered companies had a monopoly in the extraction of material resources in the land which they had been given for free. So if German companies came in the French territory, the French uh, chartered company would sue the French states for lacking to enforce monopoly. And basically, most uh, and the people around him uh, in the indigenous uh, committee uh, or in the French assembly or in the League of uh, Human Rights, which is Uncle uh, Emile Durkheim 
participate in creating, uh, basically denounce these scandals. Uh, and they denounce these scandals uh, and really attacked uh, the, the, the form of colonialism uh, expressed by the chartered company, which they called the colonial pact where colonialism was really organized around the expropriation of land and natural communities by the chartered companies and around markets. And what they proposed instead, they were not against colonialism, but they were for a generous form of colonialism in which this uh, circulation of gift will be reciprocal. It would not just be the colonial subjects giving freely their prestation, their free labor. It would also be the colonial subjects being given roads, uh, irrigation systems, uh, and uh, ed free education. Uh, that they wanted uh, for the French state to enforce. So that's why, in a sense, it's very um, it's very ironical that we see this same term, prestation, being mobilized both by the chartered company to extract free labor and by the socialist uh, nebulosa, the socialist network around most, to uh, define what should be the good relationship between the metropolis and the colonies. Today, the closest uh, uh, term to this notion of gift exchange would be the notion of corporate social responsibility that we talk a lot in the context of a globalized world. And it's pretty much uh, how these progressive uh, colonialists uh, thought uh, um, when they... Uh, talked about gift exchange between metropolis and colonies. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Why didn't Mose publish The Nation? And how did his model of gift exchange and typology of economic integration compel his own students, more than Mose himself, to question French colonial administration? In addition, why did this ethnography differ from Mose's pre-war articles? And how did conflicts between socialism and what would become fascism shape this ethnography? So you're, that's also a, a, a very uh, complex question. Uh, let, let me take the second part of your question first. Uh, how the gift, this essay, and then the work of his students differ from the uh, pre-war uh, academic work that most had published? 
Before the war, Mauss had never published an ethnography. Uh, there was no money uh, to conduct ethnography. There was not much willingness from the French colonial administration to secure uh, the travel of uh, aspiring French ethnographers uh, in the colonies where it was still dangerous to go. There were still uh, lots of uh, skirmishes and colonial wars. Uh, territories were not stabilized. Uh, And most before the war wrote essays on sacrifice, for instance, on prayer that were mm, philological. As I said, he was a very good synthesizer. He was a navid reader. Uh, he was uh, trying to, to write these long literature reviews where he would uh, propose conceptual clarifications and innovations. After the uh, victory, electoral victory of 1924, uh, in the, when he writes The Gift and when he writes all these essays criticizing the right-wing uh, policy, French policy of uh, occupation of the Ruhr, etc., in the context of the German repression debate, Mauss obtains a lot of funds to create this Institute of Ethnology. This Institute of Ethnology uh, will send in the 30s a lot of Moses students. Moses is the director of this institute uh, and the co-director with Paul Rivet, who is the director of the Museum of Ethnology, uh, where his students are also working. Uh, he sends a lot of his students doing fieldwork. So some are doing fieldwork in uh, Mauritius, some are doing fieldwork in Morocco, uh, some are doing uh, uh, fieldwork uh, in Algeria, uh, like Germain Tillion. So um, some are doing fieldwork in uh, Mexico, like Jastustel. So he sends his students abroad. And after that, uh, his students uh, publish and write uh, essays that belong to the ethnographic genre. And they also bring back a lot of artifacts. Uh, in these uh, expeditions, as uh, was the term of the time, uh, these adventures of fact-finding uh, missions that are uh, funded by philanthropists who are close to most, like the uh, Lazar uh, family and the David Veil family, who are the founders of the, the Lazar Bank, which also uh, funds the volume in which the gift is published. It's publication, they pay for the publication cost, and they put these artifacts into the French museums, uh, which most co-direct. So his status has completely changed after the creation of the Museum of Ethnology. And Uh, during that time, during the, the 30s, there is a, a, a very strong curiosity of the French public for these essays, for these artifacts. There's this huge uh, colonial exhibition, 1931, that is co-organized by most students in Paris, where millions of visitors arrive to celebrate the century of the Algerian uh, 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 occupation, we would say today, but at the time it was uh, the Algerian. Algerian uh, uh, administration and uh, and most uh, creates ethnology in France and and as I said at the beginning these students try to uh, to answer the question whether 
these exchanges, which are economic exchanges, cultural exchanges, legal exchanges between the metropolis and the colony, is harmful or beneficial to colonial subjects. So in a sense, what he does in his book, which is still un which wasn't published until recently when uh, Marcel Fournier and Jean Terrier edited a new version of that book, unabridged and very uh, well annotated, uh, what he does in this book, he tries to address the question whether gift exchanges in history from the Roman period to today have helped societies that participate in these gift exchanges progress on what he called the scale of integration. And the scale of integration, it's, so it's a very, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it's very classical of this colonial thinking of the 1920s and, and 1930s. He believes that societies can be uh, uh, basically ranked according to a scale of integration. And how we define integration is interesting because it says it basically it's uh, uh, at the highest point, uh, there is the creation of a national consciousness of a state that can uh, act to implement that national will. And at that point, colonial societies need to be freed and no longer uh, uh, participate in an empire as a colony, but as a free nation. So he ranks societies and he asks his students, his ethnographers, when they go to Algeria, when they go to Morocco, to observe whether, for instance, the uh, application of both French civil law and uh, Muslim customary law is beneficial to the local communities and helps them grow a national consciousness or not, or whether it's detrimental, whether they will lose uh, all sense of their own identity and will just become exploited. And and that's the sort of empirical question he asks his students to answer. And he finds that it varies, <laughs> to say the least. So we're going to elaborate on that a bit. Um, after uh, the Second World War, uh, why did uh, most of the students, uh, Germain Tullian and Jacques Soustel, favor the decidedly political national integration of Algeria as a post-national constitutional society embodied by the uh, Constantine plan and premised on ethnographic research. So the so that's a, that's an important uh, part of the book is that I, I not only uh, follow uh, Moss and Moss's student when Moss uh, was still living, but I also uh, continue uh, the story after Mose dies, and Mose dies in 1950. So uh, he doesn't see the beginning of the Algerian war. Uh, when Mose was condemning uh, acts of barbarity in the French colonial uh, territory, for instance, against the chartered companies in the French Congo, uh, he writes about uh, societies that lack uh, state structures, that lack a strong presence of uh, 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 
French law. And for him, it's a matter of evidence that there should be uh, French law uh, in these territories uh, to help these uh, societies uh, move toward a higher level of integration. So he's very much into buying into the progressive colonial uh, logic of the time. The context is completely different after the Second World War and because there's first the war in Vietnam that ends uh, in 1954 and immediately after starts the Algerian insurrection and the Algerian war. 1944, uh, when uh, the FLN, the Front de Libération Nationale, uh, starts to uh, some of uh, what was called at the time terrorist attacks against civilian populations. At the time, a lot of Mosul students have died. Uh, as I said, a lot of them died uh, during the Second World War because either they were in the resistance or because they died uh, because they were in the colonies and the colonies participated to the reconquest of both Italy and France and uh, as part of the, the allied war effort led by General Eisenhower. So uh, two students... Uh, among uh, uh, the, some of those who survived the war, like Lévi-Strauss, interested me in particular. Uh, they were Germaine Tillion and Jacques Soustel. And why did they uh, interest me? Is because they used this concept of gift exchange to reframe the debate about Algeria's independence in the context of the French-Algerian war. Uh, they occupied different roles in the Algerian context. Uh, Germaine Tillion was still an ethnographer. She worked uh, as a social worker, as a community organizer there. Uh, Jacques Soustel was much had a much higher responsibilities because he became after uh, at the beginning of the insurrection the governor general of Algeria. So the highest French civilian uh, authority. And uh, he proposed a completely new concept for French colonialism. He said basically in the 30s, the, the, the colonialism to which most, in a sense, uh, adhered was the concept that uh, colonialism was required until states in the colonies had developed a national consciousness, a, a political culture which made them uh, uh, able to participate in a democratic uh, form of life and uh, that they had enough resources to be autonomous and to engage freely in uh, the international society. Uh, Soustel does not propose this for uh, French Algeria. He says basically that the French, France, French metropolis and Algeria should form a, a, a post-national higher unity uh, headed by Paris, uh, by the government in Paris, but in which the Algerian society would be directly represented. Uh, so he's not advocating for the slow uh, independence of Algeria, like for instance, 
someone like De Gaulle will later uh, implement is advocating for a tighter integration of the French and the Algerian societies into a common constitutional polity. And this is very new compared to most. But he, he basically uh, uh, still uses Moses' concept of defect exchange to uh, present the economic program that would be needed for the Algerian society to really benefit from this inclusion in a, a common constitutional framework. And both in his political essays, in his ethnographic essays, in uh, his uh, administrative uh, decision, he tries to pursue this uh, dream, uh, which uh, fails on the reality of the, the political willingness of the Algerian people to kick the French out and to be an independent uh, nation. Uh, but he basically mobilizes ethnography to show the richness and the diversity of the Algerian societies. So he basically says there will never be Ethnography shows you that there will never be one Algerian nation. There are many Algerian societies, and the best way to preserve their culture is to include them all in a post-national French polity that will encompass all the French regions, but also the Algerian regions, and that will no longer have the goal of cultural assimilation. So it's it's a it's a very odd. It seems to us now that we're all uh, uh, sons and daughters of the the post-independence age. It seems to us very odd, but at the time, for he, for both Soustel and Lyon, for them, it's the only way the French capital will still go to Algeria, because for them they're very fearful that. If given, if granted independence, the Algerian states will collapse economically because all the capital will fly away from Algeria and go back to the metropolis. And they say, without this constitutional framework, without this sum of, you know, we could call it a common market uh, a treaty, uh, Algeria will collapse economically. So it will be, you know, pyrrhic victory for the Algerian independent leaders that they will get political independence, but no economic independence. And, and that, these are the debates that the, in which the notion of gift exchange is mobilized in the 50s and 60s until 62 when Algeria is uh, getting its independence. So on that note, this next question has to do with French uh, colonial convolutions of Algerian cust customary law and that scholarly shift to localized gift exchange. How and why did the rise of political science as a French academic discipline and changes in sociology in turn spur challenges to uh, Mosian ethnography and colonial administration? Um, and if possible, could you address the economic liberalism, in quotes, of pamphleteer uh, Raymond Daron, uh, who I found out was um, Moses' own cousin, and the hybridization uh, writings of Aron's uh, teaching assistant, sociologist Pierre Bordeaux? So the so uh, that will uh, allow me to to develop a little bit what I just said. Uh, in a sense, uh, with the end of the Algerian War, we could say that uh, what 
uh, Harry Liberson has called the return of the gift has ended in the sense that after the Algerian war is over, anthropology no longer tends to no longer participate in these debates about international economic governance. Uh, during the Algerian War, as I said, Soustel and Tillion are ferocious promoters of the notion of gift exchange to structure the international exchanges, we could say, between France and Algeria and between France and the rest of the colonial uh, uh, territories. After the end of Algeria, it's as if uh, markets private actors, uh, capital holders are going to decide where they invest based on the famous uh, law of profits and returns. If they don't expect returns, they will, in a former colonial market, they will move their assets to Europe, to uh, the United States, uh, to a former colony of another empire, etc., because to them, uh, only uh, profitability and markets will drive uh, capital movements. And that's what uh, Pamphletier, Raymond Aron, who uh, you're right to say uh, is the cousin of Marcel Mauss, uh, proposes. He says, basically, colonialism as grounded on the notion of gift exchange uh, is a very bad uh, way to structure international economic relations. It's very inefficient. Markets are better placed to find where they can make the most profit. And the state should not invest more resources to keep the Algerians uh, happy with the French presence in their societies. So the so anthropology is basically uh, defeated by this new international political economy, uh, which uh, is exemplified by Raymond And at the same time, anthropology reuses in the uh, work of Pierre Bourdieu and Abdelmayek Sayan in uh, the context of Algeria. Uh, is using again the notion of gift, but it resituates its validity at the local level. It says when it's used by colonial administrators slash anthropologists like Jacques Soustel and Germaine uh, Tillion to refer to the exchange between societies, between metropolitan and colonial societies, it's wrong. It's a misappropriation of the term gift exchange that we see being used at the local level by more uh, archaic societies, more traditional societies, they call them, uh, like the uh, uh, Berbers, uh, whom uh, Bourdieu studies when he's in Kabylia, for instance. And he says that basically anthropologists should not abandon this notion of gift exchange, but they should situate it at the local level, because it's the right level of validity. It's where it's a useful heuristic to describe the non, the forms of non-market exchange that anthropology ethnographers can see at the local level. <clears throat> 
And in a way, uh, both movements, the rise of international political and economy like Aron is doing, and the uh, translation uh, of the notion of gift exchange from a motion understanding, where it was supposed to help us uh, debate the roots of international economic solidarity uh, and its translation at the local level by Pierre Bourdieu, both moves participate in uh, the move away of anthropology outside of these debates about the good global governance, good international economic governance. Uh, and after that, uh, I would tend to say that uh, anthropology is less uh, a is less mobilized than other disciplines uh, to discuss uh, these debates about international economic governance. What were, if you can address, uh, most of the students' uh, rebuttals to all of this? And what was the uh, ultimate fate of the gift in French curricula? Um, and if you can, also address uh, Jacques Cousteau's total anthropology and gift exchange. Well, uh, so I think that uh, in the French curricula, the, the, you know, especially in uh, ethnology curricula or anthropology or even in sociology, uh, everyone has read the gift or Everyone has seen the gift on the syllabus <laughs> of their professors. Uh, I'm not sure they have read it from uh, the first page to the last page. It's still one of these foundational essays that uh, that everybody in the social sciences knows of. But what I think people don't get is how it was... Uh, its meaning has changed over time and how it has been particularly uh, uh, transformed after the uh, decolonization period. That it was really an essay that, that gave a program to ethnology, a scientific program that hardly makes sense today to, uh, if uh, used by ethnologists to study societies in former colonial uh, territories. And and this is uh, uh, something that that we miss. So now there there has been a tendency since the work of Bourdieu was published to use this notion of gift to conduct ethnographies within our own global north countries, uh, whether Switzerland, France, uh, the US, uh, the UK, to study uh, forms of non-market exchanges. Uh, so, for instance, uh, you have a lot of studies on uh, exchanges using uh, alternative uh, uh, currencies uh, or different systems of values uh, not based on uh, uh, general uh, currencies, but on local currencies. Uh, that is very uh, fashionable. Uh, and so uh, if uh, the notion of gift exchange is still very much present today in the curricular uh, of anthropology and ethnology programs, uh, it has been appropriated by a kind of economic anthropology, which no longer uh, looks at the international at its level of analysis. Of course, you need to put some, you know, uh, uh, there are some exceptions to that trend. I'm just describing the main trend. So, for instance, you have also anthropologists who now describe the notion of corporate social 
responsibility that I've talked about in the language of gift exchange, and and you have uh, uh, other authors do who do that, but it's more marginal. So, how and why did Algerian jurist Mohamed uh, Bejawi um, appropriate uh, the split in uh, colonial in those, those fields of education to argue that the Algerian customary rule of law conformed with classical international law? Then, um, in those debates over acquired rights in the 1962 Evian agreements, how did uh, Bejawi undermine the very notion of debt obligations of successor states? With an exception to international policy, the, the, that, that predecessor state's distinction between public property and private property of the state. Mm-hmm. So, the, so you, you, uh, the, for, for, you have read the book, so, so you can see the logic between uh, all these arguments. But, but for the readers who have not read the book, they will not, and who are more familiar with anthropology than with international public law, they will not know the, 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 the name of Mohamed Bejawi. Uh, who was uh, uh, the legal advisor of the the FLN, the Front de Libération Nationale, uh, who was negotiating the independence uh, with the French government uh, in the early 1960s, and who then was the uh, one of the first ministers of justice, and then the ambassador uh, of Algeria to different international organizations as well as to France. Uh, and who led the effort, the legal effort, uh, for the new international economic order, uh, which was the main program of the G77, the the, the Global South uh, uh, coalition of countries who rejected the uh, prolonged neocolonialism of certain economic policies of the North, as well as the rise of neoliberalism. And later on, Mohamed Bejawi became a president of the International Court of Justice, and he, I had the privilege of uh, doing many hours of interviews with him to, to, to write that chapter. Um, so, you, for, for, so, so that's, I think, one of the originality of this book, is that uh, I could have ended the story after the last question. We, we discussed the fact that uh, after Pierre Bourdieu's ethnography in Kabylia and the end of uh, the Algerian War and the uh, negotiation of the Evian Agreement, uh, uh, basically the notion of gift exchange changes meaning, becomes a notion that is operational at the local level to describe uh, local circuits of exchange, but it no longer participates in big debates about international economic governance. So I could have ended the story there. And I decided to include, to continue the story, and include in this book the story of how other disciplines continued to argue with and against the notion of gift exchange. It can look paradoxical because uh, uh, if you believe what I just said, that anthropology stops participating, the anthropology of the gift stops 
participating in the debates about international economic governance, we don't see why uh, other disciplines like international law uh, would continue to uh, discuss this notion of gift exchange and, and, and challenge it. The reason why uh, we see this is that the devolution agreements, the agreements which the French state signed, for instance, the Avian Agreement signed, uh, which granted Algeria, in the case of the Avian Agreement, its independence, were inspired still by this notion of gift exchange. And you find in these, we could call them treaties, but they are not treaties because they are signed unilaterally by the French government. In, in these quasi-treaties, the notion of prestation, uh, the notion of prestation reciproque, the notion of don, the notion of gift. So even if the anthropologists stop being part of the debate, the law of the post-colonial economic relations between the former metropolis and the former colonies is still very much influenced by this notion of gift exchange. And what the what these through through these quasi treaties, what the French state tried to do is to secure that even if granted independence, the former colonies would continue to give back and to exchange these gifts. For instance, uh, 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 between the French Treasury and the French Algerian and the, uh, the what was the French Algerian Treasury, which becomes the Algerian Treasury, there is transfer of money in exchange of the long-term recognition of the rights that France has, for instance, on the oil exploited by the French companies in Algeria. So the whole debate uh, of the post-independence era is about the notion of acquired rights, the notion of the, the, the fate of concessions, whether new in the newly independent states have the right to nationalize these concessions that extract, for instance, oil from former colonies. And what if the notion of gift exchange and the notion that actually colonies and former former colonies and former metropolis have a privileged relationship because they belong to the same financial zones, for instance, than with any other country which doesn't have this history of gift exchange. And so this, this is the debate. Uh, this is how the French uh, politicians want to structure the economic relations between France and Algeria and many other countries uh, of the, who were formerly colonies, especially those producing oil. And so in, to, to continue this story of uh, how the notion of gift exchange uh, was understood uh, as a way to structure the relationship between the Global North and the Global South. I uh, focus on the trajectory of these Algerian uh, thinkers and statesmen like Mohamed Bejawi, who knew perfectly well uh, the writings of Soustel, 
who engaged with his writings on gift exchange, who criticized his uh, uh, understanding of gift exchange, and who proposed new forms of gift exchange that are globalized. So, for instance, I discuss uh, other notions that are key to the uh, program of the new international economic order of its program, like the notion of global settlements, which both escape the colonial understanding of gift exchange, which they associate as bilateral forced cooperation, and also neoliberalism, where it's only the logic of the market that should prevail, and they propose, in a sense, a decolonized form of gift exchange to structure the new international economic order. Of course, so that's the story I said I tell in that part of the book. Of course, it's also a failure. They failed to structure uh, the post Bretton Woods uh, order in the 1970s according to this decolonized understanding of gift exchange. But their effort is still uh, very much uh, uh, very important, and I think we 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 have to tell not only the the history of the winners those who uh, uh, promoted neoliberalism behind uh, Maya Thatcher or Ronald Reagan or even Nixon before, but also the history of the losers, those who who failed to uh, to give real life to the new international economic order in the 1970s, but who are still struggling to give the Global South and the G77 its voice at the international level. So you uh, answered my next question, but um, let's let's actually move to the 90s. How and why did uh, 90s technocratic socialists, such as uh, Michel Aglietta and André Orlan, appropriate René Girard's concepts of antagonistic mimeticism and mimetic desire to engage in post-Maastricht debates on neoliberal European governance? Concepts also rooted in, in Maussian reciprocity and gift exchange despite their application kind of in a paradoxical 1990s context of floating currency values? So it's, um, yeah, your question brings me back to where I started when you said, what was your inspiration to, to write that book? Uh, as I said, you know, at, at the time I started uh, writing that book, I, I was uh, very preoccupied by... Uh, the, the fate in a sense of the of the European Union and the, the the notion of solidarity in the European Union at the time of the Greek debt crisis when on the one hand uh, you had uh, uh, advocates especially behind the, the German Minister of uh, Finance uh, who said, uh, we're going to uh, basically uh, occupy Athens, uh, not with military uh, boots, uh, but with uh, EU technocrats and uh, rule their administration to make sure that their fiscal policy is sound and they can slowly reimburse us, the debt they owe to us, uh, which reminded to some extent the policy that the French right-wing government had uh, followed in the early 1920s when they occupied the Ruhr and started to directly administer um, the uh, in, uh, German industries when Germany was found in default of its uh, uh, sovereign uh, debt payments. 
and on the other side, uh, those who said, well, we need to restructure uh, uh, the uh, Greek debt and we need to uh, do debt write-off. Uh, we need to uh, give Germany, uh, Greece the time to uh, grow economically before we can ask it to repay its sovereign debt. So, as, as I said at the beginning of, the, of, our, of our conversation, uh, that was a debate that, which I thought was uh, run along parallel lines with the debate uh, in which Moss was participating when he coined and invented the notion of gift exchange uh, to side in favor of uh, the second uh, position in that debate. And so I was wondering... You know, are there any uh, scholars who propose that notion of uh, gift exchange to rethink these uh, issues uh, related to international economic governance? Because they seem very much uh, um, timely. And to my surprise, uh, I find that in this debate, there were heterodox voices, uh, fr this French economist around uh, Michel Aguilletta or, or, or others, who proposed something that pretty much looked like what most had proposed in the 1920s. And in fact, when I read their academic publication, uh, I realized they were citing a lot most. Uh, they had organized the five long uh, uh, workshop between economists and anthropologists on the notion of the gift. Uh, we are talking about the, the, the violence of uh, money. Uh, and uh, I thought, well, I have my last chapter for my book. Uh, that brings me back to the present times. In fact, the notion of the gift exchange maybe has survived, not under the pen uh, of anthropologists, but under the pen of these heterodox economists. And it is being used uh, again to position oneself in debates about international economic governance. So that was, in fact, uh, uh, a wrong impression, I must say, uh, because what I find by reading, and, and this is what I describe in, in, the, in the last chapter uh, of, of my book, uh, is how they reappropriated yet the notion of gift exchange in a way that is very different from the one, uh, the motion understanding. Uh, and I show that even if they uh, converge with most in uh, the policy prescription they have, their understanding of the notion of gift exchange is indeed, you cited René Girard, very much more influenced by René Girard than by uh, most himself. But we can't blame them in a way because, uh, as I showed throughout the book, the notion of gift exchange has been many times, at least you know, three times, or uh, 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 understood differently at the time of Mohs, as I said, around the creation of the Institute of Ethnology. It has a specific meaning, and it's the time of you know where this progressive form of colonialism is uh, is never disputed. Then a second time at the time of Soustel and Tillion, the time of the Algerian war, where it becomes a very disputed notion and it loses its relevance to talk about international economic governance, especially 
uh, in the post-independence era, as it becomes criticized uh, by the NIO, and then when the NIO fails to give it new meaning. And this third time when uh, economists use this notion in a different way uh, to do different things, to argue differently, and to think about uh, international economic solidarity in the context of uh, Europe and the European debt crisis. So this is uh, what I say that my history, in a sense, is a, a genealogy, a bit like, you know, uh, uh, taking my inspiration from Michel Foucault, who, who doesn't describe a completely continuous story, but it zooms uh, in specific on, on specific controversies in which this notion of gift exchange is deployed. And uh, this is what uh, the book uh, does. And hopefully it will, uh, it will uh, inspire uh, other historians to look at how this notion was used differently in different contexts because in this book, I focus very much on the Francophone uh, context, and it would be great if we had other historians who, uh, for instance, focus on the, the Anglophone context or the, the Spanish-speaking context, and, uh, and that could be um, a development uh, that would be worth uh, uh, conducting. Great. I have one uh, uh, final question. Uh, uh, what's going on with you next? Are you um, working on another project or anything that you can disclose to us? Yes. Um, as you understood, uh, I am a socio, uh, historical sociologist who is interested in thinking about uh, the roots of our visions uh, of the international order. So that's pretty much my research program. Uh, and in a sense, uh, gift exchange is, I conceive it now as the, the first volume in the sense of a trilogy uh, in which this notion was very much uh, at the core of these visions of the international economic order or the international order uh, that was very much rooted in the French colonial thinking. And I describe how it evolved outside of this context. Uh, the, 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 the second volume of this trilogy, I've already written it in a sense. It's, it was actually my first book. I now reconceive it differently, uh, which was called Fallout, which was published by uh, Chicago Press, in which I uh, studied uh, the roots of the notion of federalism how federalism uh, was an, a notion that was used uh, in the context of the early Cold War and the, the pre-Cold War era when they talked about uh, the nuclear age uh, as need, you know, as uh, uh, being in need of restructuration of international relations uh, uh, into a world federation and later in the European federation. And it's funny because the so my first book traced uh, the the genealogy of this notion of federalism uh, applied to uh, uh, the nuclear age. And what's funny is that many uh, 
characters that we find in the book gift exchange, like Jacques Soustel, for instance, that whom we talked a lot about, are already present in Fallout, in my in my other book on atomic federalism. And it's not a surprise because, uh, for instance, Jacques Soustel was uh, not only uh, very important uh, in Algeria as de Gaulle's minister of Algeria, but he was also the minister of atomic energy. So there are some circulating characters in between the uh, two books. And so now the, the third volume, I would say, that has yet to be written is based on uh, a, a new research that is funded by the European Research Council for five years uh, called Bombs, Banks and Sanctions, where uh, I study the notion of hegemony uh, 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 to structure the international economic order. And this is a project that looks at the disputed uh, notion that the US, the United States uh, as a nation, can act as the policeman for the whole world. And the policeman especially uh, for the banking sector. So all the activities that uh, 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 the US is deploying that seek to assert extra-territorial jurisdiction over all the payments uh, in the world and uh, that seeks to proscribe illicit finance. And this is uh, so a third project that will lead to my third monograph uh, that I'm uh, writing now uh, that has quite some uh, uh, policy relevance as we can see today with, uh, uh, with the policy, the US policy regarding sanctions against Iran. Well, I hope you remember the New Books Network for uh, that next project. I I certainly you. so. Thank you so much, Ryan, for your attention. I do thank you for being on the show today. So the book is Gift Exchange, The Transnational History of a Political Idea, published earlier this year by Cambridge University Press. On behalf of Professor Millard, this is uh, Ryan Tripp for, the, for New Books in History. Please tune in next time. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.